Welcome to Design Aloud, a podcast where we delve into the world of UX design and research. Each week, we bring you in-depth discussions with UX researchers, designers, and industry experts as we explore the ways in which good design can create positive and meaningful experiences for users. From the latest trends and techniques in UX to the ethical considerations that come with it, we cover it all. So if you're a UX professional, a designer enthusiast, or just someone who cares about creating intuitive and satisfying products, join us on Design Aloud. Welcome, Pablo. Uh, thank you to be here, basically. Um, so please introduce yourself. Who are you and uh, how are you involved in the studio and stuff like that? So what do you do now? Um, yeah, my name is Pablo. I uh, work as a UX researcher for the last few years. I was involved in the studio for three years. Uh, mm -hmm. I left some time ago. And now I'm uh, working uh, so like freelancing, UX researcher freelance. And um, yeah, I don't know if you have any particular questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I will shoot them now. Okay, so you've said ux research uh that's fairly like a new new working environment right uh it hasn't been there for ages so in your like first job how did you feel about being a researcher like as a first research job how did it feel like and how a person goes to goes to like a research uh, centric job well, I my background is actually in engineering, civil engineering, construction, and so I was a bit far from from this field uh, mm -hmm. to start from. Then I moved into urban planning, uh, mostly because I felt that during my studies, engineering studies, we were designing and calculating, uh, basically planning infrastructure without taking into account who's going to use it and how and how it's going to affect mm. that. Um, and that's what brought me more towards urban planning when I realized that yeah there was a bigger picture out there and that was taken into account. Um, and during my first, let's call it serious job, I was an engineering consultant and I still felt that uh, in even though there was consultation, in most cases uh, that happened only after something had been designed and approved. Uh, and I felt that there should be another way to to do things. And from unfortunately, from from the established institutions or, or local authorities, that was it was hard to happen uh, the way I wanted, which was to take into account a bit more uh, participatory processes, feedback, and so on. Uh, so I started researching a bit, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, actually I found out about um, well UX uh, as a, as a field that. It's already doing that or was starting to doing that. And um, yeah, I read more and more and it just made sense to transition from uh, a profession when I was kind of doing urban research as well, uh, trying to inform studies like more in the built environment towards uh, the, the digital products uh, because they already had the methodology. So that's, that's what brought me here and I could use some of the skills I, I already had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you could use some of the skills. Uh, I, I'm asking this because with design, like if you are a graphic designer or if you just have like the right mindset and just just being able to learn a lot in like a really uh, really small amount of time, you can be UX designer. And like 
soft skill wise you can learn a lot while in the industry mm -hmm. but for researchers a lot of the times i see that people uh finish university and somehow they transition so from urban planning and and stuff like that what you have si said uh was it like easy to transition or was there like a time period like months or maybe a year where you needed to transition how did that go it was a combination of things i i think during my my last studies i was already introduced into research methodologies a bit and i was using that uh, it was quite different because it was a slower research and more about uh, reading papers and and studies and 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 so on um it was also a bit i, I felt a bit a good match for me because i've always uh, even though I'm Spanish, I'm not the, the so typical Spanish in a way that I, <laughs> I would never be the loudest uh, voice in the room. So I've always very much preferred to observe and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and pay attention to what people are saying and what they are doing. So in that sense, it was a, it was a good, good fit, I think. for. Uh, um, but yeah, indeed, when I started uh, UX research, there was a, a steep learning curve in terms of how to uh, adapt or, or implement uh, what I already knew, but also learning uh, terminologies, new processes, how to document everything in a clear way and how to communicate that uh, mm -hmm. so it can be actionable for the designers. Mm -hmm. So aside from the working pipeline, which you have like described just now, um, coming from an architecture-based uh, profession, which is, I guess, urban planning is part of architecture, mm -hmm. uh, what is like a differentiating thing aside from the pipeline and stuff like that that we've talked about uh, between digital design and architecture which is much more physical um, can you tell me something about that yeah it's the speed uh, I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is the speed uh, it's it's way faster um, you don't need to um, to build something physical that costs mm -hmm. millions yeah. and millions <laughs> of, of uh, euros or foreigns um, before you get to see how it works so it's easier to prototype you can move iterate faster um, designers are, are ready to adopt the the changes that you suggest um, mm -hmm. and it can happen in in a matter of weeks rather in, in comparison with other projects so like in the built environment mm -hmm. which you need to plan absolutely everything calculate it and only then you can get to see how it would look like mm -hmm. is this faster pace more stressful or is it just something that excites you I found it exciting and I think it, it allows also for those voices of the users in this case, but like um, uh, users of infrastructure, but in this case, digital products that mm -hmm. can, can mm -hmm. come in s into the project much faster. Um, and, in, and it keeps you a bit more of, um, you feel more rewarded, right? Because you, s you get to see that what you suggest, the, the findings that you provide are implemented straight away. And it doesn't need to go through, I don't know how many steps in process mm -hmm. for validation and approvals from local authorities and so on before anything is even considered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in this field, uh, there's a lot of jobs that are really scarce, for example, developers and maybe designers as well. What's your, what's your take, uh, not specifically take, but like what's your experience with research? Like as a researcher, is it hard for you to find jobs or is it easy and like, how many times have you need to transition? Have you needed to transition between jobs? I think 
as you said like maybe a few years ago research was not such a ux research i mean it was not such a such a key uh, element it was not always present in all the products for or, or product development processes and teams i think that has changed in the last few years particularly uh i think covid was also one of the things that triggered was yeah. that uh, people realized that yeah um, the digital is very important and it mm -hmm. requires a good experience and if you just design something without taking the like people's voice into consideration then it won't work as well so there's more and more companies integrating ux researchers and and there are more and more products and and, and projects looking for a dedicated ux researcher because i think uh before it was quite useful that a designer could uh, or was asked to conduct as well some validation research. Yes, yes, um, yes. And that's, well, we could argue that, but I, I feel that that's not always the best practice because you are designing, I mean, you are testing or, or trying to validate what you design. Yeah, and that's and some there, bias there in be, it, right? Yeah, there, mm. there can be a bit of a leading or, or even frustration in, in, in yourself if you try to get users to validate what you design and you spend effort, right? So having a, a separate, a dedicated researcher is something that I, I think people value more and more and teams and companies, and there's actually a demand for it as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in one of our, uh, one of our teams, uh, Folio, which is a uh, which is a product development uh, team, not like an agency team in UX Studio. Uh, the designer is actually the researcher as mm -hmm. well. And uh, what is what the hardest part is about that is to detach yourself, like uh -huh. you said, from your design and focus more on how the user uh, behaves or feels about the design and what it means for the product, yeah. not specifically your design and your talent, because sometimes it just doesn't work and mm -hmm. you have to accept it. Mm, what I wanted to ask you uh, is that, yeah, UX, design, uh, UX Studio is a is an agency type of company. Have you worked in an agency before UX Studio, or was it the first? No, this one was the first uh, agency I worked for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you joined before COVID, right? Yes, I joined in two thousand and eighteen. Mm -hmm. um, so roughly one and a half years before COVID started. Mm -hmm. And how was the agency environment for a researcher before COVID? Because before COVID, there was a lot of uh, like uh, projects that involved going into the client's place, mm -hmm. right? Uh, client hubs and uh, just conducting research with actual like live testing, not uh, yeah. like in-person testing. So how did it go for you? Well, yeah, there was uh, that. That's one difference. So we we used to travel more uh, and do more field research in a way. Um, I personally, for example, when I started working in the studio, uh, on my second week, uh, my first project, very first project, was was uh, uh, in an unusual place, which was <laughs> Saudi Arabia. So we were sent there, and and we could conduct interviews right there with people who were living there, and and that that made a difference because. Obviously, we could have done that remotely, but it's it's not always the same setup, mm -hmm. and you you mm -hmm. don't grasp as well the reality of the daily life and and so on. So there's uh, the element of traveling. Also, here in this at the studio, we were conducting uh, like usability tests in person. So we were inviting people to come to the office, and 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 we had uh, a room prepared for that with some some equipment so it was also again a, a bit different because you can it's easier to to um, build a report make the person feel comfortable not so much as if they've been testing tested themselves 
um, while in the remote, when, when COVID started, obviously everything moved to, to a remote setup. And then, uh, yeah, there was a bit more of friction and it took some time for people to get used to have conversations via video calls mm -hmm. um, and, and really share what are their struggles or what, what they try to, to achieve with a particular product. Mm -hmm. And most of the struggle with research through like uh, through Zoom and Google Meet is just getting the user to feel com comfortable in the scenario because for everybody else like like we did in school there are tests and tests are for you to be measured right but yeah, tests are yeah yeah but but user tests are for the product mm -hmm. and yeah for for the design uh, but sometimes the user and talking from experience uh, I had the same feeling as well uh, when I conduct user tests it's quite hard to of course through online to just make them feel comfortable do you have like any best practices of doing that well it doesn't matter how many times you i i i always start my tests my sessions saying that like clarifying that this uh even though it's a it's called a usability test or user test we are not testing you we're yeah, testing yeah. the product and that's yep. that's a common practice but it doesn't matter how many times you say that that still uh, yeah. a lot of people feel like uncomfortable or a bit a bit uh, anxious about it so it's all about in my in my case what i try to make is a person to feel comfortable so we start with a bit of chit chat uh, some just very easy questions about themselves and their daily lives so they get to feel that uh, what they have to say it's it's valuable mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and and you are listening to that and uh, appreciate it and, and somehow uh, you take into account and then you go into a deeper and deeper um, questions so it's start from from easy very easy tasks as well to the more complex ones that helps as well people to feel a bit more comfortable that they can do this and they 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 don't get defensive or as defensive mm -hmm. as, uh, mm -hmm. as well as less as little defensive as it can they can be yeah, yeah yeah like as time goes on in a meeting or in a user test or interview let's say uh users tend to be like less and less frustrated about mm -hmm. stuff and they just embrace it more and more and uh i felt this with unguided tests uh, or unscripted is that when you just let them use the product they will just in like a certain time frame they would just start forgetting that they are in a test uh -huh. and they are just thinking out loud and that's it but sometimes they even forget to think out loud yes so uh like a big part of user tests especially digital ones are for the user to say everything that they are thinking so that we can know uh based on what they see what they think as mm -hmm. well uh, but sometimes it doesn't happen, so you have to remind them every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a common thing. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think most people, uh, at some point, they just get used to it. And yep, yep. Um, so in 2022, COVID gets like lower and lower uh, in terms of like a crisis rate or how how far it just freaks into into our uh, into our spaces. So I just want to ask you, as things open up, do you see a tendency of in-person user tests becoming the norm again or not? Um, I think it really depends on the product and, mm -hmm. and the setup. I, I'm per, um, personally, I'm currently working with uh, clients both here in, in the same country, but also abroad. And mm -hmm. for those... Uh, if they have a very specific target audience, obviously it's harder to to reach in person. 
uh, it's not always possible to just travel to I don't know the US uh, once a month to conduct in-person interviews yeah. or, or usability tests and and I think it, that that applies to a lot of things like a lot of the meetings that used to be in person uh, in the past now it's the norm is just to have them online yes, as well in video yes. calls there's a lot of people working remotely so in that sense I don't think we are going back to where we were before um, and it's more of a hybrid setup um, whenever it's possible I personally prefer to conduct live uh, tests I think mm -hmm. I enjoy them more I think they are more valuable we get more insights yeah, because yeah. you get to see the whole person and how they interact uh, with the product but uh, but it's not always the case and I think everyone understands from the clients to mm -hmm. the users that it's it's not always possible yeah uh, so when I started in the studio and in the industry as well, uh, it was like COVID going downhill. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a possibility of user tests becoming person, uh, in person again. But like based on my thinking of post COVID, of this post COVID mindset, I always just thought that, yeah, like in person user tests are more expensive and they are harder to schedule because online like everybody can move into a, a google meet right so it broadened up the user base of a potential user mm -hmm. tester that's why ping pong and other forms of uh, testing meetup uh, uh, products are viable essentially yeah mm, yeah i mean it all comes down to to efficiency right yeah, and, and there's been a, a boom of these type of platforms as well from recruiting, uh, so recruitment platforms for testing uh, or or some some of the moderated or unmoderated uh, tools. They are incorporating more and more panels mm -hmm. as well for that. I think indeed that people realize that the time is precious and, and yes. uh, also if you can av avoid to travel, I don't know, half an hour, one hour to a place by having a video call, there are some some uh, uh, something that you need to to trade off, but um, but in general, it, there's there's definitely the, the tendency is to keep everything as effective as possible in that sense. Mm -hmm. mm, so when starting a project, there are these kickoff workshops and. Uh, inside the company as well, like uh, your time being in UX Studio, you've done a lot of workshop facilitation, right? Uh, yes. So on your first project, you did something with, uh, with the Saudi Arabians, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, based on your past experiences, you had, uh, you had completed something uh, like, a, like a workshop facilitation training, right? Or how did it work? Yeah, so I... When while I was at university, I was uh, I was very active in a lot of different uh, topics, um, from sports to uh, to learnings, and I also got involved in youth organizations and mm -hmm. NGOs, uh, and that's how I discovered a bit about this the, the concept of non-formal education, which um, quite opened my or blew my mind at the beginning because it's like different type of education in a way that it's. Uh, it's bi-directional, so it's not only you receiving information from the teacher mm -hmm. or whoever is teaching, but, yeah. um, but there is an interaction there, and, and um, it's, it's in most cases, is a more effective way of, of learning. So um, I, I started just by attending this type of, of workshops, and at some point I saw the opportunity to uh, attend a train the trainer, um, workshop or, or course in order to be able to design uh, learning experiences, how to do that, how to facilitate them, 
um, in, in an effective manner. And uh, that's how I got into that. And that, that was before I started working definitely as a UX researcher, but it helped a lot in terms of building um, confidence first, but also facilitating. There's, you know that in UX, there's also a lot of occasions when you need to um, collect information from stakeholders or mm -hmm. from users, yeah. and there's a lot of workshops involved as well. And um, having that previous experience helped a lot in terms of uh, using the right methods, how to how to um, well create that that environment, safe environment, so everyone feels that they can contribute and they 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 feel heard as well, and you can move on in a more efficient manner. Because sometimes workshops just go on and on and on without yeah. getting anywhere. Um, but if you have a good facilitator, that that can be avoided. So yeah, I definitely that that helped. Mm -hmm. And what should be the perks of a good facilitator? Uh, so you've said uh, like keeping the time and then keeping just the structure of the workshop, but what else? Well, it's preparing the exercises, keeping the objectives, the goal of the each of the exercises and the general session in mind all the time, not only in yours as a facilitator, but also for the group, so they know that they always keep in mind, okay, what we are. this is what we are trying mm -hmm. to do. So and clarity. Achieve. These are the, yeah, clarity, um, providing clear instructions as well so everyone is doing what mm -hmm. they are supposed to do uh, because sometimes that that can go very wrong as well and you <laughs> end up after I don't know 15 minutes exercise that people took it in a, or understood the, the instructions in a very different way um, timing and also as, as I said like making everyone uh, feel that uh, that they contribute and that they can um, that they are li listened heard and that they, whatever they contribute with uh, is taken into account as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's very important because in, in many cases, there's always in the room someone who uh, it's louder or has stronger opinions or they just express it in a, in a more mm -hmm. uh, confident manner. And there's people who have a lot to say, but just for personality reasons or, or role or hierarchy, they don't express it. So finding the right method so everyone uh, everyone's opinions and, and thoughts and inputs are, are taken into account. I think that's mm -hmm. that's a big perk too. If anybody is interested uh, from the listener side uh, of what tips and tricks do you have for handling these situations? So for quieter ones and and uh, people with like stronger uh, opinions, how do you how do you like keep the level of engagement and? I think it's a combination of uh, different type of exercises, as I said. said. Um, some of them can be more uh, discussion, like open discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, some others can be more like individual brainstorming, and then you put everything together. Um, if there is a conversation happening or, or a decision, like directly address everyone in the room or those who are uh, talking a bit less to make sure that they also uh, contribute in the, in the conversation. Um, and then there's a number of artifacts that you can bring to a workshop from, from objects to, to make sure that only one person speaks at a time, um, mm -hmm. uh, timings, um, different types of um, like signs to, to express that they have something to add to a given opinion or a given topic. Um, so all in all, it's, it's about yeah making sure that the, the group moves on, but everyone has uh added something to the conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh let's talk about like the size so client meetings with a lot of people and a lot of stakeholders can get crazy enough right but <laughs> what about workshops which are like even like hours or 
like a day worth of just work how how do you structure that um it's managing the one something that is important is to manage the energy in the room as well and being as a facilitator you need to read that uh to see if the group is low in energy maybe they need a break uh, making sure mm -hmm. that everyone keeps engaged setting up some rules at the beginning of the workshop like uh let's not use the phone uh, or if anyone needs to somehow um, take care of a task like let's do that in the break so everyone agrees on a set of rules uh, at the very beginning so um, so that's that that helps a bit um, and then it's uh, choosing a variety diversity of exercises so everyone it's not like you are doing the same thing but just mm -hmm. about a slightly different topic over and mm -hmm. over again yeah, yeah. trying to approach it in different ways uh sometimes even role play and simulations is something that always works very well to put yourself in uh in the user's uh shoes let's say or, or or it really depends on what you're trying to achieve but in the end it's like choosing a diversity of exercises and setting up some rules always help to uh to manage a bit the the energy and then whenever you feel that the group needs a break or some sort of uh energy boost then um, then make sure that you also take care of those other needs like being fed and having water pee breaks mm -hmm. uh these type of things that oh they are very God. basic but a lot of times when we plan an, a workshop we forget about that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's like a more bigger planning than just yeah get shit done and then and then just make people heard it's like granular granular changes that can benefit all the people inside the workshop as well yes and then when it's uh, in a remote setup that everyone is joining uh to a video call uh which is something that again uh peaked during covid but i think it's it's here to stay it's choosing the right tools for that so in making sure that everyone feels comfortable using those tools because maybe you as a facilitator have a has um, a preference for a given tool but if no one else has used it then make sure at the beginning of the session that everyone feels comfortable using it's like know the basic actions and they mm -hmm. can they can do whatever they they are supposed to do so you don't need to interrupt the workshop but in the in the middle and explain okay this is oh how yeah. you uh, <laughs> you can add a sticker here or change this or edit that um so making sure that the tool is accessible for everyone everyone feels comfortable more or less using it i think it's also important in our remote setup definitely mm -hmm. uh for a person who's worked in an agency uh, set up an environment there's a lot of clients who are not that ux mature so mm. maybe um like in, even online meetings but specifically online workshops and those tools that they might not have used uh can be a pain mm. do you do you have any tips or any tricks for setting up that before the workshop so you know just just a reminder to yeah use the tool for a bit before the workshop so then everybody is up to the standards or or just a reminder email that everybody shows up what is the uh yeah um de definitely the, in some cases the clients feel or might feel or not only the clients like different stakeholders might feel mm -hmm. that having a workshop is a waste of time and that can be solved in a different way um my approach is usually prepare an agenda in advance with clear objectives this is what we are trying to achieve during this session mm -hmm. which is something something like actionable tangible that 
they can agree with like this is important if we get this we can move on mm-hmm. uh try to keep the timing uh as realistic as possible so uh, it's hard to expect that i don't know uh, a ceo would spend two full days of their yeah. agenda <laughs> in a i don't know in a uh feature prioritization pri- prioritization uh, exercise for example it's, it's something important but they probably some of these people feel that maybe they don't need to be there so highlighting why why this like you think that this person is is useful or what they can contribute with uh is something that can help as well so sending an agenda including the goals and then um yeah explain a bit the logistics so this is we are gonna use this tool um make sure that if you need to uh, set up in advance um, and then why adding a line of why we think that oh, this is the list of attendees and why we think that each of them should be there. Um, I think that that helps a l- like a lot in, in previous cases, but there's always, yeah, uh, some, th- there can be some frictions as well. Mm-hmm. And it's the role of the facilitator at the beginning of the session to set up the tone and make, sh- or at least as much as you can to make sure that everyone feels that, okay, this is what we are doing and let's, let's be mm-hmm. focused on this because mm-hmm. otherwise it's not gonna work yeah you got an interesting point there uh before uh preparing there can be uh the mindset in the client like what's the purpose of this like why do we uh allocate a lot of time to do a workshop so in in terms of this how do you persuade a client or how do you just make sure that a workshop gets facilitated in the right time for the right cause Huh, um I, it's it's not the usually it's not the facilitator uh, task actually i think it's more of a of a team mm-hmm. decision that okay we are blocked or we are facing this this stage in the process where we need to uh, align everyone or or somehow uh ideate uh new solutions and then is when the facilitator gets somehow the the scope or or what is the the task at hand and then plans the whole thing um but in some cases it's true like a, a product owner might come to you and say we want a workshop and we, we would like all these people to be involved but maybe some of them say no and then as a facilitator uh, if in conversation with the po if you if you both agree that this person should attend but maybe they are a bit reluctant then um, then just a conversation of what could persuade this person so it's more about again highlighting why they should be there and and communicate that in the in the best manner mm-hmm. um you've done multiple workshops with clients so kickoff workshops and workshops when the project gets stuck mm-hmm. and you've done workshops inside the studio as well with designers and researchers mm-hmm. what kind of workshops were those i attended one i think it was last year about assertive communication yes that's right uh, what uh, kind of other workshops have you done and what was the purpose i think the biggest course i delivered together with uh, another colleague here in the studio was a product design course for external so it was not mm-hmm. for for our colleagues but people who were interested in in ux design and the process and uh, so it was a four days uh, course where we went through the entire design process get them to actually experience every single step and in the end uh, have a uh, a product that a product idea that or concept that has been somehow tested um that was that was quite interesting uh to 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 leave uh, and to experience because it was the first 
big big task mm-hmm. or big course that yeah. uh, the studio ha- ha- were was doing in in English, I believe. Um, but then, yeah, I don't exactly remember, but things that you mentioned, assertive communication, there were some ideation workshops. Uh, I always wanted to um, also prepare some, I, and I think I did, uh, um, workshop facilitation uh, workshop, <laughs> <laughs> in a way, uh, sharing those tips. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't remember much, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Th- it was a bunch of them. and. Uh, whenever how it worked is that whenever there was a need for a workshop uh, I somehow had experience on on facilitating so I was helping or supporting whoever was the Mm -hmm. lead for that uh, trying to come up with the best methods Mm -hmm. and 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 facilitate so so like you were like the workshop guy uh, to ask in the studio kind of Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. not always because there's also other people with a lot of experience and and more than me Uh, but it was it was nice to be taken into consideration when when those situations came Mm -hmm. and for facilitator or facilitators in in one workshop that uh, who prepare not prepare for the client and and for the other teammates in the studio or in a company but for them like if we are talking about the kickoff workshop for example because in every project at the beginning there should be one to get at the same level as the client and the client can get to the same level as the designers how many how much time does it take for you or for someone who's conducting workshops uh to prepare for them is it changing from project to project? I guess it is, but can you like just a rough estimate on, for example, for people who might do their ver- first workshop, how much time would you consider uh, preparing for? Again, if it's your very first workshop, you might need to uh, to double this at least. Um, if you already have a, a set of exercises or methods that um, uh, like a list let's say that you can pick up and you kind of know which how they work i would say um twice as much as the length of the workshop is a it's a realistic number mm-hmm. um accounting with everything so scheduling uh, preparing the exercises preparing if it's digital preparing any type of uh, dashboards that you're going to use set up the tools if it's in person there's also always a lot of things to prepare if you're showing some slides um so there's no like a magic number i would say but Mm -hmm. to be on the safe side i would say twice as as much Mm -hmm. as the length of the workshop Mm -hmm. okay Mm, in the studio uh you was uh you were a researcher but uh, you were a squad lead as well right yes uh what does that uh, yeah, yeah what does that mean in the studio's uh perspective well the squad lead position or role came up uh from the need of we felt that there was a distance between um, some, I mean, in general, in the team. So we, again, in the context of COVID, right? So mm-hmm. we used mm-hmm. to work all together at the office uh, most of the days. We still had, uh, I mean, we had some flexibility on that. But then during COVID, everyone was working from home. And, and after COVID, there still was a, a bit of a, some, some distance in some cases. And we felt that some people were feeling a bit lonely in their, in their role they didn't get uh, as much support or they didn't feel confident to mm-hmm. enough to ask for support so the idea of creating these squad li- uh, squads uh, were groups of people who 
not necessarily were working together, but at least they had a closer group of colleagues that they could uh, who they could ask questions or or ask for feedback, um, and then feel a bit more connected. Um, so sharing some social activities as well. So it felt that it again it was an attempt, and I think an, a successful attempt to to uh, solve this hybrid situation when mm -hmm. uh, even if you're working remotely from your home because you live somewhere else or in the city, but you don't feel like going to the office, at least you feel that there is a group of people closer to you that you can ask for for mm -hmm. help and, and support and just share some some social time. And the role of the squad lead was facilitating or, or somehow making that group form. So from, from group to team or squad, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, go through the process of getting to know each other really uh, and making everyone feel safe that they could share whichever struggles they were having from a professional perspective, but also sometimes personal and make sure that, yeah, you know that there's someone else out there. So it was a bit of uh, organizing those occasions mm -hmm. and hosting mm. them. Yeah. So from joining the studio, you studied as a researcher and while a researcher, you became a squad lead as well. Yes. But after leaving, uh, you went to the freelancer environment. Mm -hmm. So from an agency to a freelancer environment, uh, can you tell me what made you change and what are the differences between being a freelancer and working in an agency? Yeah, it was a very hard decision, to be honest, to leave mm -hmm. the studio. Uh, for three years, this place was, was like a family. I, was, I had moved to a new city, new country, and, and I found a lot of support. And, and I learned a lot from, from my colleagues in that time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as I said... Um, I'm, I'm usually into a lot of different topics uh, and and I felt that after three years um, it was time to try something slightly new um, so I was looking for the opportunity possibility to explore some some topics or some type of products that were not always or rarely were coming to to an agency like UX studio mm -hmm. um, and I, I was lucky uh, to to be able to work on some because uh, some uh, some projects came my way, uh, for example, in terms of uh, Web3 or blockchain, also in terms of finance. Um, it's not that we were not getting finance uh, projects, mm -hmm. but uh, somehow it was, uh, it was a special one because we were trying to create uh, a social uh, neobank where there was a big element of uh, being conscious about how your money is used and facilitating contributions to NGOs and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that, well, basically I saw going into freelance as an opportunity to be a bit more picky about the projects that you want to spend the time working on. So um, I had a number of, of topics that I was interested in exploring and I felt that, well, it was time to maybe um, to pursue those. Um, Another another reason was that I wanted to uh, somehow work or manage more my time, uh, have a bit more flexibility if at some point mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. was something important, I don't know, a, a learning opportunity or something else that was going to take a few weeks, be able to take those weeks off um, or, or work less hours and, and be a bit more part-time during a month and then go back to full time. And that's some flex flexibility that obviously it, it brings some risks in terms of being a freelancer, but at the same time, you, you own your own time mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in a way. So that was, um, 
that that was that, that were those were my reasons i wanted to pursue something else on the side and and i somehow slowly progressively reduced my workload on ux research and start doing some other things um what was the question i think you uh, i think you answered this uh, what i want to follow up on is that you mentioned the benefits of having yeah, having yeah. your freedom of choosing absolutely yeah, yeah choosing the projects and then uh, choosing how much time and uh, how long do you stay on on them i mean aside from like contracts because contracts exist mm -hmm. uh yeah but then uh uh, a lot of people that uh, went freelance say that, yeah, the hard part is for some of them are to find clients if they are not, you know, well known in the scene mm -hmm. or they just don't have enough uh, connections. How was it for you? I was very lucky. Uh, I, d I didn't need to look for a lot of projects uh, from ex-colleagues and some friends uh, and, and people who I knew, some, some contacts I was getting uh, or... I received some project proposals that I could accept or, or not, depending on my workload. Um, but there are nowadays there are a lot of options out there to look for projects. Um, I think the hardest part is not. It's actually to have the experience, like uh, x years of experience, to be considered. But I believe that there is such a demand right now that in some cases companies reduce that or are open to. Mm -hmm take on uh, researchers that have less experience if as long as there is someone so the thing is in in uh, the way i see it now in the market there's a lot of companies looking for they they somehow manage to allocate some some money for mm -hmm. research but they cannot afford to hire two or three or or, or someone in house also they like look internal. for something mm -hmm. more ad hoc um and for that they generally require more experienced uh, researcher mm -hmm. uh, by more experience i'm not talking about five or ten years of ux research experience but two or three at least have have experience in a number of projects and and being able to show that you know the methods and what you are doing somehow so um uh, but I, what i was saying is that um, there's also a number of platforms out there uh, that offer uh, freelance projects they somehow do the matching Mm -hmm. uh, things like Toptal, uh, and it's also, uh, it, I think it's worth to explore. Um, mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends who got projects from that, uh, both for design and research. And I think in general, what I would suggest is definitely network, uh, in particular spaces like, for example, Web3, uh, there is m a big demand for UX experience uh, practitioners from design to research. And there are specific forums for that where designers and researchers uh, share best practices or mm -hmm. share mm -hmm. contacts as well. So it's fine in those. And those are mostly nowadays, for, for at least for Web3, uh, Discord, Telegram, this type of, uh, mm -hmm. this type of forums. Then, um, but if, if there is a topic that you are particularly interested in, I think there are always already in, uh, what I would suggest is to look for researchers working in that field and asking um, for whether they need some support they there is any opportunity to to get into that topic um, ask for mentoring uh, at the beginning we, you might not be the, the lead researcher in a project but yeah of course uh, that's that's how you gain experience mm -hmm. And experience specifically uh, means uh, like research methods and just being comfortable in the field. Uh, 
does it determine by the type of projects or just basically what type of clients do you work with and uh, what is the nature of the projects, um, stuff like that. So basically what I want to ask is that, for example, with Web3, since you've been working in this, in this environment, in this industry, do you feel like you are more comfortable working in different Web3 projects or it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, Web3 is a, it's a bit of a paradigm shift. Uh, there's a lot of new things in terms of user experience uh, mm -hmm. happening in Web3 products just because the, the, the whole concept is a bit different, right? It's, it's all about decentralization. You don't, users don't rely in a, in a big institution organization to manage their data or, or they, they are, you're, you're giving them ownership of their own uh, uh, actions, let's say. So Actions and like assets and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are there are different or new steps that people need to get accustomed to, and I think in that sense, my first Web three project was a, a big a jump into doing a lot of uh, reading and trying to understand how it works. And I wouldn't say that now I understand everything, but <laughs> I understand more than before. And then the second project was much easier in that sense. But I think that hap that applies to any any particular industry where if you haven't worked before, you need to get familiar with the terminology, how, uh, who are the main uh, companies or competitors working on that, um, what are some common UX patterns already uh, working or that, that are used in this type of products and so on. Mm -hmm. And then once you get that, uh, for example, just to answer your question, for example, if you, it's, it's more likely to get a job as a UX researcher for a fintech app, if you already had one before, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you cannot bring some of the previous experience that you you had in a different product. It's more about how you present your those mm -hmm. those experiences and those skills and uh, and I think communication is one of the biggest uh, skills that every researcher uh, and designer and everyone working yes, in this space yeah. need to uh, like somehow yeah confidently. Uh, embrace because that makes a big difference yeah that's what i wanted to say is that in terms of design and designers specifically that's the case as well so just communication and just the uh, will to learn the domain knowledge that is specific to each project uh, so if it's about fintech or web3 or m something in the medical field that's something that a designer can learn and should learn if in a project or in a product environment like that mm. But yeah, for design, it's more on the communication and the soft skills of how do you solve problems. And that's uh, that can be set for research as well, right? Yes, and also if you already work with that particular audience, uh, the, the, the target audience, you are familiar with their practices, with type of, what type of products, other products they are using, uh, problems or tasks, goals that they are trying to solve or achieve. Um, it already makes a, makes a difference because then um, you don't need to spend that much time on that. Uh, so, yeah, but I definitely encourage everyone to explore new new topics and new new industries because it's growing everywhere. It's no no longer only a particular set of type of mm -hmm. products um, in any type of digital, and we are moving into beyond digital. Um, we are. I, I saw the other day a job. Uh, pause for um, 
the interface at, uh, for, for cars as well, and they were looking for a researcher to somehow mm-hmm. um, help build that. And we are moving into yeah, that, that physical space or mm-hmm. somehow mm-hmm. that is connected to that. So there's definitely a, a, a big demand in all that. Mm-hmm. And for growing opportunities, you being a freelancer is a bit easier because you can you can freely allocate time for for opportunities to like gr- grow yourself in a specific space right um so since it's a freedom you can work less or you can just allocate time much better but you can work more as well mm-hmm. so how do you find uh, work and life balance i think that's the the first lesson that probably most uh, freelancers or, or at least the ones i know uh, and myself have uh, had to face is the or, or learn is that uh, it's very easy to overwork and to say yes to too many projects yeah. uh end up working way more hours than before just because uh, now you're freelancing and you feel that if you say no you fear that if you say no once then nobody else will come mm-hmm. and ask you to, mm-hmm. to work for them um and it's it's a process that most people uh, learn and i said most because there are still i i have a couple of names in in my mind that <laughs> i know that they're struggling with this but uh, um it's it's about respecting a bit yourself and understanding that not I- even if you take a l- if you take too many projects you won't deliver uh the same quality you will just suffer out of stress and and you're compromising something and try to ask yourself why you are doing this is it uh to learn new things but or or to i don't know earn more money or to just make yourself a name but uh not necessarily by saying yes to everything that that makes it work and then uh, from a personal level definitely you um if you want to keep that balance it's important to learn how to say no and what you are saying no and what you are, you prefer to do. Um, so having a list of priorities in terms of what type of projects you want mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. work for. Uh, for me, I'm working from home most of the time and it helped a lot, even though I don't have a big flat, it's a 40, 50 square meters flat, but uh, separating uh, a, a part of the room for mm-hmm. work and, and for anything else that help. These are nothing new, but I think it's setting your own boundaries is something that every freelancer needs to learn and not only freelancers obviously i think that's something that happens to yep. everyone but yeah, it's yeah. indeed for for freelancers it might be a bit more tricky yeah saying these out loud like uh, yes yeah, sep- if you're working from home sefer- separate uh, like just one desk or if mm-hmm. you can spare a room to like an office and these can be obvious when said out loud but they these little changes i yeah, I, I feel the same, that these changes can help a, a lot. And then in the creative industry, burnout is like the worst thing that can happen mm-hmm. to you. Uh, so maintaining that, the excitement and just the way you liked uh, working before, maintaining that is like the biggest key. I feel like in my uh, in my understanding and general as well. I mean, I would also add that um, not for uh, having three, four projects at the time you you're a better researcher uh sometimes you uh you will learn more and improve much more if you just cut that in ha- into half and dedicate mm-hmm. a bit of your spare time into learning something completely new that has nothing to do with research but gives you a different perspective mm-hmm. um so uh yeah it is absolutely important to keep uh, that balance somehow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Uh, so for some closing thoughts, yeah. uh, what do you think about user research as an industry and where it can head in the future? So talking about Web3 and uh, going from digital to physical and having more opportunities for a researcher in every field, basically uh, getting there, getting research out. Uh, what do you feel this industry is headed? Um, whatever there is design, the like researchers kind of uh, will follow. I think uh -huh. um, something I liked. Uh, I was very happy to see. Uh, and again, I go back to Web three, but uh, there is. I think it's happening in many other industries that researchers start working more together, collaborating, sharing best practices, methodologies, even access to. I mean, their credentials to use particular tools or something because. More in most projects, there is one researcher. Sometimes there's two. For bigger companies, obviously there are more. But um, what you find out there, particularly as a freelancer, uh, it's more like smaller projects. And if you have to deal with all these platforms and all these by yourself, it's hard. Uh, so I think there is a there is a tendency to collaborate with other researchers, not necessarily doing the same in, in the same project, but sharing uh, the learnings, practices, and so on, resources, um, and then. I think the, the like UX research or user experience research beyond the digital as well, it's, it's growing and growing. There's uh, still demand and it will continue growing. Um, and my personal goal is to actually bring this back to the built environment a bit more and uh, like apply these same design uh, thinking principles or bringing mm -hmm. uh, these mm -hmm. iterative processes more to um to physical products as well and and the built environment because i think that's that's what needs to uh yeah needs to happen uh for for better um mm -hmm. experiences in general yeah uh, at the beginning of the episode you've talked about urban planning and uh, just getting back research into that field is it something that you feel like is a possibility or architecture and urban planning in itself is still not in that phase yet there is more and more there are more uh, architectural firms that are uh, looking for design researchers or applying mm -hmm. a bit of research conducting some some studies i think it it will happen it might take a bit of time but i see it happening earlier is more in this uh, middle ground between for example um, the physical and the digital um, Let's talk about smart houses, smart homes, for example, and mm -hmm. how having an interface, but also like the whole experience of I don't know temperature and and lighting and um, opening the door when you get close and so mm -hmm. on. I think that's um, that that it's already here, and there's more and more demand as well to understand how people interact with these type of, mm -hmm. of platforms. So hopefully, I mean, that's one of the options that I'm seriously considering to go into that because it's kind of the middle ground, as I said, between digital. I was never purely digital. I, I, that was not mm -hmm. my background. I found myself here and I really enjoy it, but I, I feel that uh, that would be very interesting to explore and somehow try to bridge those, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. those two environments or contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about time. Okay, uh, thank you, Pablo, so much uh, for this talk. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Um, yeah, do you have any closing thoughts uh, for yourself? 
No, um, I think it's great uh, what you are doing, like this this podcast. I definitely feel honor and and uh, uh-huh. uh, it's it's been I'll a pleasure. I'm excited <laughs> to uh, to be asked to participate. But I think again, it's uh, it's about educating as m- as more people as possible. I don't think as designers, researchers, we should keep this to ourselves. Yeah. Um, the more people know about good design and research practices, the more. Uh, people will apply it out there and it's not about competing with each other that much but uh, trying to be more thoughtful in what we do so mm-hmm. yeah I agree okay thank you again Pablo thank uh, you. and uh, have a good rest of the day <laughs> you too thanks a lot thank you for listening to this episode of Design Aloud we hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned something new about the world of UX if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you You can reach us on social media or through our website, uxstudioteam.com. Be sure to join us next week for more thought-provoking discussions on the latest in UX. Thanks for tuning in.